We'll start with a, a real short prayer. Um, Father God, thank you for this day. Thank you for this opportunity to uh, explore who you are and what you are. And um, in our limited abilities, uh, try to understand uh, you in this world you've put us in. Um, I pray that uh, you would open our hearts and minds, that you would uh, speak truth through me and uh, relay that truth to those hearts and minds. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. <coughs> All right, so last week we talked about science, the scientific method, um, and how you can't prove God using the scientific method because it deals with our five senses or it deals with the, the reality that we live in. So, um, yeah, science can't prove whether there is or is not a God. So what we can do through science is see that this world looks as though, appears as though, um, that something or someone with a mind, an intelligence, put it together. Um, so that's what we can do with science. But if we're gonna be defending our faith in a supreme being, we can't rely on science and the apparent uh, in design in nature to make that argument. So what can we do to make that argument to the world? Well, that's where we fall into philosophy. And it sounds, it, most people think philosophy and think, ooh, right, because it's weird, okay? And if you start reading it, it is weird. Philosophy's weird. Um, on your sheet that you all have, uh, I have philosophy defined on there. Essentially, philosophy is the study of the truth, essentially, right? I think that's what it says. So um, that is a non-scientific element that we can that we want to know about, right? Truth. Modern world. Uh, Everybody wants to say that truth is relative. Um, truth is not relative. And we can prove that by this definition up here, which is an antecedent truth, which is a formally true or true by definition truth, and later a true by definition cause. We'll sh I'll show you that. But one plus one is two. That's true. Nothing you can do can change that. It'll be true, always be true, has always been true. Equality. Equality is true. Um, if you have the exact same amount of one or another thing, they're equal. They will never change. That'll never change. The only way that will change is if you take one piece out of another and add it to something else, then they become unequal, but then we get into what is called a uh, ah, non, oh my gosh, my brain just broke. <laughs> um, Uh, you're breaking the law of non-contradiction, which I think I have a definition on your sheet as well. So we'll just jump right in here. I'm going to read a couple quotes. Um, the first one is by Soren Kierkegaard, uh, a Danish philosopher who was credited with being the first existentialist. Um, I believe that definition's on there too. Like I said, lots of big multisyllabic words. Uh, he said, if there is no God, then all things are permissible. If there is no right, then there is no wrong. Okay? Sounds pretty scary. Um, the other quote, I'm going to kind of be a little disingenuous with Immanuel Kant's quote here, because in later he 
kind of uh, explains how this doesn't have to be. But I'm going to use it because it gets my point across. If there is no life after death, then there is no ultimate basis for justice. Then there is no ultimate basis for ethics. Then all life becomes a preference, and then society becomes inevitably impossible. So Immanuel Kant is credited with being, uh, he, he is a transcendentalist, uh, idealism. He's also the one they credit with uh, modern relativism. I don't think it's very fair to Kant from what I've heard and read, but um, it's fine. People like to take stuff and twist it. So Kant believed that you cannot ultimately know God through your five senses, through the what is called the phenomenal realm, which is the realm that we live in, um, which is also known as the teleological and the ontological realms, which I gave you definitions for. Um, he believed that there was a God but that we just couldn't know him. He was beyond our ability to know um, physically, right? Uh, this is ultimately what led to relativism, because if you can't prove there's God, then everybody's their own God. So now I'm going to read a verse out of the Bible. Romans 1, 18 through 23. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who, by their unrighteousness, suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and animals and creeping things. So I highlighted a bit. I want to go back and read that bit one more time. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So, God says you have no excuse if you live in this world. God says, uh, contrary to Kant, you can know him. You can know who he is just by experiencing the phenomenal realm, the natural realm, the realm of the five senses. So how do we get to a place uh, where we can defend our belief in God with these two contradicting views? Uh, do we go on blind faith? Do we say, uh, I believe it, and so it's true? Well, that's relativism, okay? Because anybody can say that. They can say, I believe in the spaghetti monster, and it's true, right? Um, uh, do you fall on the tried and true um, Christian quote, the Bible says it, that's all I need, that makes it true, that's it, that's the end of the story? It's a little bit of circular reasoning. Um, that's uh, In this modern world, that's not going to suffice. They'll, people probably get laughed at. Or do we go down the path of historical evidence, uh, which is solid and a very valuable and good path to go down? Um, there is so much evidence historically to prove the God of heaven, especially using Jesus and the historical evidence that he exists, uh, um, as we've shown in our other classes that it leaves people in a position where they have to deny the facts to deny God. But in this modern realm, in this world we live in, that is a possible tactic. They will deny the evidence. They'll, 
revisionist history. They'll just say that, you know, it's some kind of, uh, I don't know, plot, plan, something to dupe humanity into um, control and a way to gain money and power and, you know, lots of things. We need to prove that we exist. So, all right, so how do we get to proving to the world that there is a God with all of that ridiculousness? And that's where philosophy comes in. So in order to get there, and, and you're going to have to kind of, I'll try to make sure I go slow enough to where you can follow along. And I'm, my presentation is fairly short, so we will have time at the end to discuss this, which we will need to discuss it because it's a brain bender. All right. Um, it seems really simple and logical, but once you start trying to wrap your brain around it, it can become a little convoluted or a little difficult. So um, to get to an argument for a causal being, which is a philosophical way of saying a supernatural being or God, something that was the ultimate cause, uh, I believe it is Aristotle that said there has to be an ultimate mover, the first move, the first mover, the, the the first being, right? Something that was before anything was. Uh, we need to prove. So to get there, we need to prove that we, you and me, exist first. Now that sounds ridiculous, right? Do we have to prove that we exist? Uh, so yeah, we do. Um, in philosophy, there are people that are, that there's a, irrationalists that will tell you that everything you experience is not real. It makes no sense, that's why they're called irrationalists. But they believe it. I mean, that's what they believe. That's what they'll argue. So, if something exists, this is, there's, there's four ways that something can exist, and that's something that I'm talking about right now is us as humans, okay? Because if we don't exist, then we can't prove that anything else exists. Are we, do we understand that? Do we understand why we're starting with humans and not the earth, right? We're starting with us because it's what's up here between our ears that defines everything else, right? Does that make sense? Okay, so. If something exists, it is either, I'm gonna have four points, I'm gonna make a point and then explain it a little and then go to the next point, I'll give you one and two. And so one, if something exists, it is an illusion. We were just talking about this. And yes, there are people that believe this. Yes, people believe that essentially we live in the matrix, right? Everything that we see is a construct, it's not real, it's fake. Um, but we have Descartes to thank for a philosophical argument that pretty much debunks this. Uh, anybody know what Descartes said? I think I am. There you go. I think, therefore, I am. Descartes. I don't know his first name. Rene. Yeah, that's right. Rene. Rene Descartes. French guy. Um, so. I think, therefore, I am. So how does this work? How does I think, therefore, I am prove that we are not an illusion, prove that we are real? I'm going to read this. I'm going to read it right off the paper, okay? And then if you, need, if you need, we can break it down into something a little simpler because this seems very weird, all right? But I'm going to read it because it's how Descartes explained it. He says, if I think, and I know that I am thinking, and then I doubt that I'm thinking. So if I have it, so Descartes' thing was to take everything back to the basic, most basic question he could ask it. And so the, he got, to, he started with, do I exist? And how can I prove that I exist? So he says, I'm thinking. Wait, am I thinking? So I'm thinking, if I doubt, that I am thinking, 
And then I recognize my doubt that I'm thinking. That means I'm thinking about my doubt about that I'm thinking. Okay, right? Which means I'm thinking. Which means I exist. Which means I am. Right? Because this follows the law of non-contradiction. Which you cannot have a thinking being. Something that is not doesn't think. Right? So nothing that isn't thinking thinks. So if you're thinking, you are something. All right, now, whose brain hurts? <laughs> Is it fairly clear as to how we can prove that we exist by saying we think? Right? Okay. This proves reality. This, this argument also proves a causal being. And, and, and that is because we'll get there in step four, but, or an, an idea four, but it proves a causal being because if we exist, we had to come from somewhere. Logical, right? It makes sense. If, so number two, if something exists, it is self-created. If we are going back to our science class, this would go back to before the Big Bang Theory, they just said all of a sudden, one day, at one point in time, poof, there was a universe. That is spontaneous creation. That is a logical fallacy. It cannot happen. The reason being is nothing comes from nothing. Right? Does that make sense? So, if you want to, if you want to make it even more confusing, you can say that in order for something to come from nothing, it had to exist while it was nothing. Right? Okay. So, to make it simple, nothing comes from nothing. Nothing can, something cannot come from nothing. That is the law of non-contradiction. And I told you at the beginning, philosophy is weird. But And these kind of truth concepts are, can become a little confusing. So, number three. If something exists, it is self-existent, which means it's always been there. Which is different than self-created. It means that it's was never created, it means it was always there. And we're talking about us now. And unless you are severely deluded, you do not believe you were self-created, right? You've got your mother and your father as witness to the fact that you were not self-created. Is that right? Yeah. Right, so, okay, so now we've proven that human beings are not an illusion because we can prove that logically, philosophically. We've proven we're not self-created, right? There was no spontaneous creation. We didn't just will ourselves into being. And we're not self-existent. We haven't always been here. We know this because people die and people are born. Number four, we were created by something. So now we come to a initial mover, a causal being. That is God, right? So this, so we can see that we have been created by something logically. So I'm going to pause for one second. Are we clear on this? Does this make sense? So you're saying that all of these four are different options. Right. These four are options for something that exists. There, there are, in what I was listening to and reading, there are, a lot of different options as far as this, but these four options pretty much sum up the options of how something exists. Any other questions? Are we tracking? Am I doing a good job of making it not too confusing? Okay. So we can see that we have been created by something logically, right? Using logic following the laws of non-contradiction, following the antecedent truths, following the 
brain that God gave you, you can see that we exist. And since we exist, there has to have been something that put us into existence. That something is self-existent and eternal. Okay, so when we're doing the steps, we know that self-existent and eternal, that the word eternal is important. Okay, eternal meaning that it has the internal, the self-ability of being, which means it, right? Okay, I'll define that a little better. Uh, God is a being that is not dependent, derived, or contingent on anything else. He is self-sufficient, has always been. Nothing created God. God didn't create himself, because we already proven that you can't create yourself, right? That's a logical fallacy. He has always been, okay? We being finite beings, this is a, a hard concept to kind of grasp, right? Have been always been. But God has always been. There was never a time he wasn't, and there will never be a time that he won't be, okay? So this is not a logical fallacy. This, is not a, this does not break the law of non-contradiction, right? To be self-existent and eternal, it can be defended logically. We're not going to do it, but it can be. It takes a long time. We now have a causal being, okay? A, a creator, because nothing else makes rational sense. Do we agree? Is, does anybody disagree? How about I should say that? Don't, I, I'm, I would like, for, if you disagree, I would like to know. Are we making? I'm not disagreeing, but foolish hearts became darkened is a very good way to describe what people do. Right. And I read that out of Romans, right? Is that what you're referencing? Yes. So, and, and I agree with you 100%. So, so now we have a causal being or a creator of the universe because nothing else makes rational sense. Uh, could this creator, because we haven't necessarily defined this creator as the Judeo-Christian God of the Bible yet, have we? We haven't. We've just said that logically there has to be a creator. Logically, there has to be a self-existent, eternal being that exists in order for us to exist. Tracking? Okay. So how can we prove that this God is the God of the Bible? So now, we have to look back into ourselves again. Uh, we'll look at the one thing that makes us different from every other creature on this planet, and that is a conscience. That thing that makes us feel guilt. Um, uh, where did that come from, and why is it universally acknowledged, unless you are a psychopath? Okay? Uh, literally, that's nobody that has a sound mind will say that the conscience doesn't exist. Um, and this is where I kind of uh, use Kant to my advantage because Kant did another critique on logic, and I believe it was called natural logic, which was his second critique. And in that one, he talked about the um, universal oughtness that mankind has. This universal oughtness is an understanding of right and wrong. Okay? So Kant, in his first critique, pretty much dismantled the ability to understand and know God through the five senses. 
in his second critique, he's, he essentially came back and let God in through the back door by saying that there is a sense of right and wrong, and I'll explain how that proves God. So are we tracking? All right. Let's break it down a bit. Uh, for this ultimate oughtness, for this oughtness, uh, this right and wrong to mean anything, there has to be justice, right? Okay, so, and for justice to mean anything, there has to be ultimate justice. And for there to be ultimate justice, and this is according to Kant, this is his argument, but it makes sense and it's very biblical, there has to be life after death. And why is that? That's because in this world, we know that justice is not always served. It's one of the biggest complaints that people have against Christianity. If God is good, why do good people suffer? Right? Is that, is that not a major argument against Christianity? Where's the justice in the world? If God is just, where's the justice? So let us, let's, I'm going to break it down a little bit. Ultimate justice is required for ultimate meaning. Okay. Moral absolutes have to come from a moral lawgiver. An ultimate judge. This judge has to be morally perfect, above reproach, and incorruptible. He also has to be omniscient, as the being has to know all to judge all. And last but not least, he has to have the power to um, mete out the justice that he says, right? He has to have the ability to do, to be the judge and to, and to make the judgment call and to make it stick, right? That means he has to be omnipotent or all-powerful. So without ultimate justice, there is no reason for good behavior, right? Does that make sense? Are we tracking? Okay, so I'm just going to say it anyways. If you have no reason to be good, if there's nothing holding you to a standard of right and wrong, you will do whatever you want to do because there's no reason not to. Okay. Uh, without ultimate justice, there is no reason for good behavior and no reason to follow the conscience that is placed in every person. All right, so I'm going to throw this in here. Evolution... Evolution does not lend itself to a conscience or morality. If we are truly evolved from nothing and, and we are part of the uh, survival of the fittest, um, evolution would be detrimental to this because you would care or have a conscience of right and wrong and you would, and that's going to... Uh, not allow you to get what you need to carry your genes forward. Does that make sense? Uh, if you study the natural world, um, this is how things work. Are uh, you saying evolution contradicts this? Evolu evolution contradicts our conscience. Our conscience. Yes. Absolutely. I say evolution contradicts our conscience. You ask the evolutionists, the, those people, they'll tell us that somewhere back millions or tens of thousands of years, at some point in time, somebody decided that it would be good to set up laws or to set up a, right and wrong, a sense of right and wrong. But if that person was doing that, what's to stop another tribe from going, yeah, go ahead, have your right and wrong, we'll come rape and pillage, take everything you got, we'll, be, we'll, we'll live, and you won't. We'll be stronger, we'll move on. Our genetics will get passed on, yours will get crushed. Is that, 
There's no... There's no... Um, no, there's no checks and there's no reason to have good behavior, right? There's just none. Watch anything. Everybody likes to mention chimpanzees as our closest relatives, which I have recently found out they're not that close. It's, I mean, really. I mean, everybody says there's like a 3% difference. That's, that 3% is in a very specific section of DNA that they're looking at that has to do with uh, metabolizing foods and binocular vision and other things. It has nothing to do with a lot of the other things that make us human. And chickens are three and a half percent. And and I'm sure if you actually went back and looked at the at the DNA at how they're doing it, the, that again, they're using they're using that three percent or that three and a half percent, they're using elements of DNA that match. Chickens are warm-blooded. We match that way. Chickens have binocular vision. We match that way. Chickens metabolize food in a specific way. We match that way. Basically, they're just cherry-picking the data it, they want. Exactly. Now, if you look at the overall DNA sequence between a chimpanzee and a human, because they're essentially bipedal primates like we are, right? It's 70% match. That leaves a 30% deficit. And I'm sure as they dig into that more, they'll find that it's even greater than that. Um, so all you have to do is look at a communist country that believes in survival of the fittest or the evolutionary model or Darwin's uh, model. You'll find out really quickly that where morals are lacking or missing completely, um, those that doesn't work, right? It it doesn't. There, without morals, without morals, life becomes desperate and full of despair. All right. And could I, I was going to say this for the last, but you touched on it. It's very important. Uh, Marx and Engels were existentialists to the extreme. That's that's important to realize because. There is truth to existentialism. There's a little bit of truth. But they took it to its extreme, not just saying, as Kant did and Kierkegaard, if there is no God, then there is no right God. They went ahead and declared, there is no God, so we're going to go to the extremes of existentialism. And as you said, Hitler, Mao, Stalin were all supportive of existentialism and latched on to evolution as their uh, extended philosophy of, to, to excuse what they were doing. And they, they were very blatant and very open about that. And Hitler's phrenology and all that other business was all woven heavily into it. It, it was their new gospel. So he's, I'm going to boil it down, he's essentially saying some of the worst characters in history, Mao, Stalin, um, Hitler, uh, these these type of people took existentialism to its extreme by saying since there is no God we can do what we choose and they took evolution to the extreme by saying that um, there must be some of us that are greater further along the path than others and it's our duty to clarify and strengthen the gene pool by eliminating those people. Um, America is not free from this thought process. Eugenics was practiced until the late 60s. Um, if you don't know what eugenics is, eugenics is essentially taking mentally handicapped, those that the eugenicists decided were not fit for breeding, and either sterilizing or institutionalizing, and in worst case scenarios, putting to sleep like an animal. And in Russia, with the Olympics, they pick their athletes at birth or very young age, and they're going to be administered in their track style. Yep, yeah. So, so that is a good point, 
right? But of course, anything taken to the extreme is going to lead to extremism. Didn't Darwin even question his own theory about evolution and say that something about how the sophistication of the eye actually kept him awake at night? He's not even completely believing his own theory, but so many people down the line accepted his truth. Huxley's the one that really... Darwin did question it, and then it's Aldous Huxley that kind of pushed it over the edge. He's the one that modernized it. Um, true evolutionism is a dying thing. They're trying to find ways to work their way around the huge issues that they have. So, um, yeah. Darwin did. Darwin said that if you could ever, the thing, uh, Michael Behe, his uh, Darwin's black box, and this is back to last week, but anyways, um, he said uh, that what Darwin said was is if you could ever find something that existed that couldn't be broken down into a, a, a process, that something that couldn't be taken apart and be put together through a process that that would eliminate his theory of evolution, which Michael Behe has done repeatedly. And not only that, but lots of other people have done that. That's called irreducible complexity. That's right, irreducible complexity. Yep, that's true. So now we've, now let's go to, uh, uh, that leaves us with the laws uh, that God has written on our hearts, hearts, which is the conscience which we are given. Uh, when I read in Romans, that's what Romans 3, whatever it was, Romans 1 and 2 and 3 all talk about. Is this law that's written on your heart? Um, we will be accountable for the morality that we live out will be accountable for this law, okay? This is the pretty much only reason that people don't want a God, is because if there is a God and you have a conscience and you know what is right and wrong, you are now accountable to the ultimate judge of right and wrong, which is the God of heaven. Right, or their lack of. <laughs> they do not want to be accountable to anyone as they want to do what they want to do, reasoning that if they deny God's sovereignty over their lives, then they do not have to follow God's laws. Yet, without a loving and supreme God, there is no hope. We are fools beyond our fools, and without the God of the Bible and the moral laws the Creator has given us, Civilization would crumble into chaos. Fools desire no ultimate purpose uh, or meaning to their lives and will reject any logical explanation of such when supplied with evidence to the contrary. Just to keep the freedom to do what they want to do, to sin, to live their life the way they want to live it, uh, without any accountability. So I have at least 15 minutes Yep. So, so how does this prove the God of the Judeo-Christian God versus another God? Good question. So, I have essentially proven that there is, unless somebody wants to, and and Jeff, uh, step in if you want. <laughs> I have essentially proven that there is a, a an ultimate cause, right? Something that has created creation, right? We've also proven that we know right from wrong, right? We know that. Without it, we're animals, and we're not animals, right? We know that. We, have, we, we know that. So we also know that there being an ultimate creator, that ultimate creator created us the way we are, right? Okay. 
That means he put those laws in our heart and in our mind. He gave us that conscience because he created us, right? Yeah? Now, that means he has to be the ultimate judge as to whether or not we are following those rules, right? And like I said before, without, without um, a conscience, without morals, uh, life is horrible. There's no hope. If there isn't an ultimate good, that means that there is nothing to live for. We're, it, it's pointless, right? There's no ultimate meaning to life without any ultimate good. Okay? So, as far as your question goes, we have proven, the Bible has said that we have a creator, that he's written these laws to our hearts, that he is the ultimate judge, that he is omniscient, he's all-seeing, he's all-knowing, he's all-powerful, right? That he is the ultimate judge, and that one day we will be accountable for the choices that we have. So as far as the Old Testament God of creation goes, can we say that I have proven that that exists? Explain. Well, I think you've shown that the God of the Bible fits, like fits into this, so you could say that it could be him. But then those seem more general godlike attributes that could be claimed by other religions. Do other religions claim those attributes? Well, I think another religion could. But do they? Which ones? Well, Islam. Well, yeah. Yeah, Islam harkens back to the. Abraham, God uh, to, to the God of the Bible, even though they yeah. misunderstood who that is. Yeah. So. This is a valid question you've asked, but if I could offer something. In studying the five major religions, and there are many more subsets under it, but of Islam, uh, Buddhism, Hindu, and we'll throw Judeo-Christian into the same group of I was stunned how standalone the Judeo-Christian story is. The rest of the religions have very little prophetic declaration or incarnational uh, stories to them. They don't say, God has now come down amongst us, or I speak for God because God appeared to me, or whatever, like Moses did. They, Hindu, Buddhism doesn't even know if it believes in a God or not. They're not even sure what a God is. It may be just all our minds. Hinduism, they've got this 40,000 gods. Millions. And, 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 uh, and, and no incarnational, no prophetic de de declaration. And, and so even though another religion could try to make itself fit this model, few of them even claim to. And this is what stunned me. And Jesus is, is totally standalone. No one else teaches, I am the Savior. I came here to die for you. I'm going to willingly lay down my life. Got himself murdered and rose from the dead. That is the only one. So, so this, I don't know if you all heard him, but he's essentially saying that no other of the major world religions have the same gravitas as, as Judeo-Christianity and the God of the Old Testament, right? They don't have the same kind of creation story. They don't say that, that God... Ha they don't claim an ultimate creator. They do. They claim ultimate creators. They do. But their ultimate creator... So one of these antecedent truths up here, what was the last one I wrote? Absolute goodness. I believe that this is where the Judeo-Christian God separates himself from the others. He offers love. He offers absolute goodness. He offers love as well. Um, if he's absolutely good and he's given us a conscience and the right and the ability to know the difference between good and evil and we choose not to do good and he's the ultimate judge, but he also created us, right? So he knows who we are. 
right? So if he is absolutely good, if he is absolutely good, logically, logically, he has to have, or he would, logically, he would want to find a way to, to help us meet his goal for us, right? Does that make sense? Which is why I intentionally left salvation out of this little um, thing. Because, one, I want us all to understand what Romans is saying. Uh, we can be good, <laughs> and, and we can be righteous, and we can be religious, and we can do all these things that we know we should do, but unless we have a way to achieve ultimate righteousness and ultimate goodness, we're doomed because we're going to stand before an ultimate judge who, who judges these things ultimately, perfectly. And we know, especially according to the Bible, that we can't do that. The other religions of the world, what is their thing? Their thing is to work your way into an ultimate goodness. Work your way into the perfect being to achieve nirvana. Work your way into the perfect life so that you can be reincarnated as something perfect. The, the, to appease Allah in such a way that you can go to the heavens and have whatever it is you want to have. But the Judeo-Christian God didn't leave us that option. There is no option to work harder, be better, and please God. No one has, did, no one has done good, not one. Not one. Not one of us has done that. Related to that, there's a, an unfairness in the other teachings that we can work our way into heaven. Um, one example being, um, we, everyone mostly believes, a lot of people believe that prayer does something good. So the Tibetans, the, and specifically, and, and Buddhists also, and Shintoists, believe that uh, singing a prayer to heaven will work some good. And there's a construct where you write your prayer, uh, and I've been to the Shintoist shrine in Tokyo, I've seen this, and I know it, it's, it, it, there's other places under Buddhism also. Anyway, you write this prayer, and you put it in this, what's called a prayer wheel, and you spin it. And they believe every time it, it's spun, that your prayer goes to heaven. So the more times you stand there and spin it, this is the work, uh, the more time this shows your intent to send it to heaven. Well, somebody said, well, why don't we put it up where the wind can hit it, and then when the wind blows around in circles, it goes to heaven more often. Well, there's an inherent unfairness there, because people who live in the windy climes, <laughs> they keep more prayers set to heaven than the people who live in the lowlands. So that belief in that work, he lets an unfairness to the half of humanity that, that doesn't live in, in the windy city. Uh, and, and, and that shows a a simplistic superstition, I would believe, going back to your words go to you to heaven if you live in a windy place. And that's, that's illogical, that's unfair to most of humanity. You know, I can, I can put a motor on it and make it real fast. I guess that makes me go to heaven. I've got electricity. Yeah. So, so Danny. Where are we at? I mean, I guess I, I agree that you've shown the need for a, for a, uh, you know, uh, unmoved mover. But, I don't know, I think like in your Christianity, C.S. Lewis, doesn't he start out kind of proving what you did and at the end showing why he thinks that it's the God of the Bible, but I don't think he even absolutely proves on those grounds that it has to be philosophically but just why he sincerely believes and really wants it to be. And I, I agree with him on that. 
You know, it definitely fits and works, and I believe it. So from a logical standpoint, from a logical standpoint, um, is there another option? Well, I was just thinking, do you think that, like, the God of a deist, does that fit? Because, like, he defines truth and absolute goodness and morality. Without an opportunity to know what God wants or needs from you, that's the deist outlook, right? The deist is the watch, the blind watchmaker, the the guy that started the clock and then walked away. That's a deist approach. That's kind of Kant's approach as well. Is that he's unknown? There is a God, surely. I mean, it's it's irrefutable that there's a God. Logically, logically, you cannot get around the need for a cause or cause. So basically, the absolute goodness is what's going to separate a Christian worldview from a deist. Or from an Islam or... Um, the reason that absolute goodness is going to separate us is because that absolute goodness, we can draw love into that, an absolute love. Because otherwise it, be, it, it becomes the God of the little kid on the anthill with the magnifying glass, right? It becomes... It becomes untenable, and what happens is it there's zero hope. And without hope, without hope, we become despondent, right? As creatures, as human beings, without hope, without uh, uh, an understanding that we have an ultimate meaning and an ultimate path, we become hopeless. We become despondent. We become. We live in a world of despair. And anybody who suffered through depression can tell you that. <laughs> you know, no hope. You're just in despair. No meaning. I agree. Yeah. God, God revealing Himself in Romans one. Um, I think He talks a lot about creation there, but also in life, God reveals Himself in so many other ways, in relationships, in how we interact with one another, a love of a parent for a child, a love of a spouse for each other. Uh, uh, you see a child suffer, you feel compassion for them, you go to a hospital where people are ill. And so all those things are also a revelation to us of who God is. So it isn't just creation, but it's the way that we're made. It's, it's all those feelings that we experience that we really don't try to conjure up or those are antithetical to right and that was and I I made that point that that those the feelings of of empathy and goodness and care and kindness and and support uh, those those are all a antithesis to evolution those do not make evolutionary sense. Um, go ahead. A lot of people ask why there's suffering in the world, but do people ask why there's goodness in the world? That's true. Right, and, and, and that's a very good point. And so I was thinking there's absolute goodness, right? We know right and wrong. We know what's good and what's bad. As far and and Danny, I'm I'm not picking on you, but I think that if you can can come to the point where you believe there has to be a causal cause and a, and a creator being, and then you start looking at the options for a creator being, and if that creator being is absolutely good, then the God of the Bible is pretty much the only God we have that makes sense that has sustained a a oh what's the word I'm looking for it has sustained his his presence his his yeah his presence in this world the God of the the God of the Bible and if you read the Bible he explains how these things work and I 
And we've, we've shown that the Bible is trustworthy. And so we can trust it. It hasn't changed. Uh, it, it has stayed the same for thousands of years. Um, the truths, there's, there's prophetic truths in it, which some still haven't come true. And some of those prophetic truths are so specific that it is hard to, it's impossible to dismiss. I'll just say hard. It's incredibly difficult, if not impossible, to dismiss. Um, these things can't be known ahead of time, which means there has to be a God that, that knows these things ahead of time. And in the Bible, that God has said that he's going to make a way for us to stand before him. No other God says that. No other God says that. So, like I said before, I, I kind of wanted to leave the, the salvation message out of this. And I know that's a really bad Christian thing to do. <laughs> but I want us, I want to back up a little bit. I want us to know that there is a good God, a good God. But that good God is also a just God and a holy God. As a reflection of a culture, moral relativism and personal truth is something that's pushed at us continuously in dialogue. If you come with someone, well, that's true for me. It's not true for you. Well, that's not true. The truth is universal as it's presented here. And that's one way you can know it's true. I think, therefore, I am. But we use words and they mean different things to different people <coughs> in relationships. And so I think our culture is trying to pick and choose what parts that they like of God, when all of God is worthy and good. But we, as Christians, as a following this word the best we know how in this life to honor him, we still want to dialogue and point to the one who's worthy of praise. And sometimes I think, I want to use, I think people are using words they say true, and they don't mean it to be true. Like comparing scriptures. So world religion. I think that's the part that our culture is for we as a church. Um, don't apply in our world. You're saying that as a culture we don't apply biblical truth to the world? Well, why? Because we don't want to. Well, I mean, why would we? Well, because we want, I mean, I do. We do. I love people enough to tell them no or yes. I and mean, God loves don't do that. We, don't. we could open a ginormous can of worms here and get into a lot of different other things. Um, we'd only, we don't have that much time. But I agree with what you're saying. It, it makes no sense that if you see something that works really well and then you choose not to follow that, that's kind of, it, it's kind of stupid, Right? Right? I mean, but we know we live in a stupid world. Read the warning labels on your hair dryer. Uh, okay? People do what they want to do because they want to do it. And, and again, I, I want to reiterate the point that someday we will stand before an ultimate judge who is holy and righteous. He has given us, he has given us a way to stand before him. You have a choice there. You know what's good, you know what's wrong. You can choose to stand before him accepting the sacrifice of his son, or you can choose to stand before him on your own merits. And if that doesn't terrify you, <laughs> I, I, don't know, I don't know what will. And again, if we go back to the scripture I read, the people of this world their 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 conscience is darkened it's seared god says a conscience can be seared and that means essentially made to the point to where nothing can get through it anymore that's a terrifying thought right where you no longer have it, an idea of what right and wrong is and you just don't care but god has given us an option and i kind of wanted to leave today at this at this at the feet of God, a righteous and holy God who is ultimately just, who is going to ultimately judge us. Because as Danny has said, this, 
doesn't necessarily have to be the God of the Bible, but it necessarily, logically, is the God that is there, a righteous God, a just God, a holy God, a, jo- a God that is ultimate in his judgment, a God that is ultimate in his being. And if there is a God and he has written these laws to our hearts, we're going to stand before him. And it can be a capricious Allah who says, eh, you did okay, I'll let you in. It can be the, uh, the uncaring universe, as in Buddhism. It can be one of the six million plus deities that the Hindus have that will guide you on to another deity that will guide you on, that will send you back as a cockroach if you didn't appease them. Or worse, a mushroom. I mean, you don't have to come back as a living being in that religion. You could come back as one of the untouchables and never have an opportunity for reincarnation into something better. That's hopeless. So the God of the Bible, I believe, is the only logical choice. And that is kind of what I was... Truth and morals are not relative. I hope I kind of proved that. So, yes? Oh, I just wondered, maybe with all the teachers here, is there a really easy, accessible look about uh, philosophical arguments for God that you recommend or know? She wants to know if anybody knows of an easy book on philosophical arguments for God. Accessible. Accessible. I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. What is it called? I don't have enough faith. Oh, they struggle or something like that? Frank Turek. Frank Turek. Also, the the Summa Theologica by Thomas Aquinas. If you actually, if you, if you Google the it, Aquinas is five proofs for the existence of God, okay. it's it's relatively concise and more straightforward than you would think, okay. and you could probably find a lot uh, of that. You wouldn't have to read the whole thing. Uh, and it was a summa theologica. Yeah, but it's it's only like a couple of pages of the five proofs, so it's yeah, short. Which is you can Google the five proofs. Yeah. Okay, so any other? Okay, go ahead. I just want to throw out real quick uh, it's okay to do what we're doing today. It's okay to question, and I want everyone to, to feel comfortable with what we're doing. Uh, and I'm sure they do. Uh, but it's okay to question, uh, and it's okay to think these things through. Um, in the seminary, some of, some of us know. In a seminary, when you study theology, there's usually, they break it down into about 10 different fields, studying angels, studying Christ, studying the nature of God, many times. But one of those 10 fields is the philosophy of religion, which we're doing right now, and that we're using the world's definition of philosophy to study religion, the correct way or the incorrect way. So what you're doing here is an okay thing. It's it's not it's not something you've invented that's worldly. I, I I wanted to reassure myself. It's it's a good thing if it's done righteously to, to look at these things. So are you saying I did it right? Okay. Thank you. <laughs> Just a quick comment. I think it was Jesus who said, I'm gonna tell you what's gonna happen so that when it happens you'll know that it came from me. And I think that five hundred different times Prophecies already come to pass, and history has actually proven that. Mm-hmm. One third of the Bible is prophecy, which pretty, to me, confirms pretty well that this is the Word of God mm-hmm. and the absolute truth. <coughs> something you can stand on. Isaiah 53, way before Jesus came, and you've seen the odds, and probably in church we've heard of the odds of those particular prophecies actually coming to pass, which, which we can pretty well prove. <coughs> But what the Bible says would happen, happened. And, and up to the point of Jesus, I believe everything has to happen. It's so, and I agree. I agree that the one of the key elements that sets the Bible of the Judeo-Christian world view apart is the prophetic element. My goal, my goal is to give you weapons to guide people 
to that because that's not the first place they're going to go. You can tell somebody that all day long and they're not going to go crack the cover of that book. If you can give them as, I don't know who it was, but if you can give them that pebble in their shoe that says, wait a second, he's pretty much proven without a doubt that there is a God. And then they can, and then you can say, and yeah, there are lots of gods, but this God in this book is the only one that says he loves you so much that he sent his son to die for you, that he gives you a way to be able to stand before him and his ultimate justice. Otherwise, you're on your own, buddy, and I don't want to be you, right? So that is, that's what I'm hoping this class does. And I know we started with the Bible and we kind of moved forward. And, and I'm really hoping that we give you guys tools that will help you guide people to the Bible. And then they can read the Bible and they can, and they can see for themselves that the God of the Bible is good. Not just a just and holy God, but he's a good and loving God as well. So I'm going to pray real quick. Oh, go ahead. Um, just a follow-up to what David said about it's okay to doubt is that even evolutionists and atheists can doubt. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and again, that Descartes made it evident that if you're doubting, right, you exist and you're thinking, right? Ask an evolutionist where his... his uh, his conscious, ask him where his creative thought came from. Not even consciousness. Let's leave that alone because they can, they can attribute that to some poor guy giving another guy a banana in a moment of weakness, okay? <laughs> ask him where his creative consciousness, ask him where music came from. Ask him where his creativeness came from. The creative nature of humankind is unique. Nothing else does what we do. I, I heard a guy say he was going to write a book that said, why hasn't an ape built an airplane? Right? It, they don't have it. Or beauty. Why do we need beauty? Beauty. Yeah. Why did God give us beauty? Or the, or the ability to understand it or perceive it. Human speech. Human speech. But other creatures have elements of speech. Dolphins. and Not like ours. Right. Their speech is not, and I think the word is, analogical our, their speech does not have the ability to use an analogy to describe something else that is a that is a human thing so another big word you can write that one down too if you want <laughs> all right i'm going to pray real quick and then we can go hear what jack has to say uh, father god thank you for this time thank you for being you Thank you for making a world that is logical, that is understandable, that points us towards you and points us towards your truth. Um, thank you, Father, for being loving and kind and being holy and just. And uh, open our hearts and minds to what Jack has to say today and bless the rest of this day in your son's name. Amen.